Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. This is the weekend edition of the podcast where we go a little bit longer form and we interview notable people in the world of real estate investing. Today's no exception. We have a very notable individual. We have none other than Dr. Doug Duncan, Senior Vice President and Chief Economist for Fannie Mae. Welcome to the show. Ah, thanks. Uh, thanks for the invitation. So, Doug, it was great to hear you talk earlier today. I read your economic forecast that came out a couple of weeks ago. And some of the things that came out in the forecast, I really had some deep questions about. One of the things that you talked about was that new housing starts are, in fact, supply-side constrained, and that's holding back the market. Can you expand a little bit on that? Yeah, if you take a look at the U.S. demographics, and housing is really ultimately driven by demographics, if we were building single-family structures at the pace that fit our current demographic profile, we're probably something like 250,000 units short of where we should be. So what that's showing up in the marketplace is accelerated house prices. That is prices that are running at about four times the long-term national average in real terms. The demand side of the market is fine. Uh, the millennials are actually now buying houses. For the last three years, we've seen an increasing share of them go into purchases and a decreasing share of them go into rentals. So the demand side of the housing market is looking just fine. But on the construction side, we're well short of uh, where we, we should be, according to demographics. So most of the builders that I know, are they're kind of genetically programmed to build houses if there's demand. What's, what's causing the slowdown here? That's right. They don't make any money if they're not building houses. So uh, two things right now, uh, maybe three. The two that you hear consistently and plausibly are the cost of getting land through the permitting process and to the pre-construction phase. That is all the development that takes place up until you build a house on the property. Systematically across the country, we've done some investigation, and whether you were in a low regulation or a high regulation environment previously, it's higher now than it was before. That all goes into cost of building the base structure. The second thing is you have to have workers in order to build houses. And if you think about it, if all the builders are trying to expand, then the number of them suggesting they can't find skilled labor should be rising over time, and that's exactly what's happening. So that's very plausible. <clears throat> Wage rates have gone back up in the construction space to the same level as they were at the peak of the boom, why don't they go higher to attract more uh, uh, more labor? Because there's only a certain point at which you can bear that cost and still, still build and sell a house profitably. The good news is that over the last year and a half or so, the average size being built, size of house being built uh, in square feet has been falling. What that means is builders are starting to see two things. One is the move of employment out into lower cost areas so they can build smaller homes profitably. And the second one is that those millennials are now buying starter homes. Now, the multifamily market, certainly any multifamily projects that I see come on the market, if they're existing projects, I see multiple offers very consistently. I see bidding wars. And I'm finding that it, as a developer, I'm able to build new product for a fraction of what you know, things are trading for in the marketplace. What's your perspective on what's happening in multifamily? Well, the 
If you're in the multifamily business, uh, and we are, Fannie Mae um, has about $350 billion of guarantees on multifamily properties, the last three or four years probably will be the best that you'll ever see. It's been a really strong, strong market. One of the things about it, though, is that predominantly it's been driven by the A or high quality properties. Relatively little construction in the B space, no construction in the C space. And of course, A, B, and C is the height of the rent. A being high rent, B being mid rent, and C being lower rent. So it's been tilted toward the upper income groups in the rental space. That's likely to, to shift now. We see some sub-markets uh, in some metropolitan areas that look to us like they're overbuilt and some of the risks are rising. Uh, reasonably, we're starting to see some slowdown in construction, which will keep that from being a, a cataclysmic drop-off. But we do expect some of those properties to get revalued, maybe to a lower level uh, and repriced, uh, depending on the dynamics of the local market. Well, certainly, uh, you know, Fannie Mae's been, and HUD in general, has been, uh, you know, terrific in terms of providing non-recourse product and, um, you know, long amortization product. Uh, do you see any, you know, um, changes in underwriting rules to try and cool the market or anything like that on the horizon? Uh, not really. Um, uh, the, you know, Fannie's after the crisis, I would say, is more balanced in terms of how they think about owning versus renting, that it is a choice. And one of the things that the crisis proved for sure is that if you're going to lend someone money, that you want to make sure that they're financially capable of sustaining it, whether it's in the single family business or in the multifamily business, because the costs of foreclosure are tremendous, both on the household and and on the investor and on on the builder. So uh, there's... After the crisis, underwriting criteria were significantly tightened. Over the last three years, those have been eased back as we've learned more about sorting through the the pre- and post-crisis data to calibrate underwriting criteria. And we actually do a survey on a quarterly basis of lenders, and we ask them, do you intend in the next three months to ease credit standards? And then in the past three months, did you? So that we're kind of tracking that. The the pace of easing of underwriting standards has uh, clearly bottomed. And uh, that's probably a really good thing because we're late in this economic cycle. This is one of the longest expansions we've ever had, and all of them have eventually ended. What you don't want to do is ease standards right at the cusp of a turn because the last people, the one who got the loan because you eased standards, probably had to have eased standards because they weren't as credit qualified, they would likely be the first person off the bus if the market turns. So I think there's a healthy move to, to stabilize uh, underwriting criteria where they are. One of the things you alluded to in the report was some warning, warning signs on the horizon. What were you alluding to more specifically? Well, there are a bunch of indicators that you can that you can look at that typically peak or bottom, depending on the indicator, just prior to the onset of a recession. One of the things I pointed out was that the share of people entering or taking jobs who had been out of the workforce seems that it peaks just before the cycle. In other words, the bidding for to find labor because becomes most intense just before there's a turn in the cycle. Other things are corporate debt tends to peak, consumer debt, and we've seen in the last uh, couple of uh, releases that consumer debt has all of a sudden backed off. 
uh, consumption on the consumer side has kind of flattened off on the discretionary side on the on the uh, longer term things like houses and cars that's not so much all of those and there's a host of other things that we watch that tend to kind of peak before the before the turn in the market. Unemployment, for example, is down at rates that most economists would suggest are at or below a long-term sustainable uh, unemployment rate. That typically happens uh, before there's a turn in the cycle as well. Well, when you measure unemployment, of course, as you know, unemployment takes out the discouraged workers from that figure. So, you know, you almost need to look at percentage of the economy or percentage of the population that is in the workforce rather than just the pure unemployment number. Are you also looking at it from that perspective, from the participation perspective? We do, absolutely. From the from the uh, workforce participation rate, we, we track several different kinds, but one that I find most meaningful is those aged 25 to 54. And what you see is that's still a couple of percentage points lower than it was uh, at its peak. And it has turned up in the last few months, which suggests that the tax bill, which was on the consumer side, was intended to incent people to get more after-tax income if they work, does appear to be bringing people back into the workforce. One of the reasons that even though we've added a couple of hundred thousand jobs a month for the last six months, the unemployment rate has stayed flat at 4.1%. So some of those people are coming off the sidelines. Question how long that will go on before the Fed gets antsy and starts to move with interest rates more, more rapidly. Well, I love the perspective, Doug, and I read your reports literally the minute they come out. I keep an eye out for them. Uh, thank you for joining us on the show, and I know our listeners appreciate your perspective as well. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Doug. 